We're going to be focusing primarily on chapter 4, but we'll also make some comments on chapter 5. You know, one of the questions that often comes up in my thinking when I'm learning or understanding truths about the providence of God is if God is providentially in control of all things, working out everything to the end of keeping his promises, then what part do I play? You know, what am I supposed to do? And uh, tonight we're going to see, uh, hopefully, uh, truth just stand out to us. And that is, is that God's divine providential power compels obedience. God's divine providential power compels obedience. And that's our big idea for those of you who are taking the teaching and preaching uh, the Bible class. You're familiar with the idea or the thesis or the take-home truth. However, uh, those teachers are quantifying that. But if you walk away with nothing else tonight, I want you to walk away with that truth. That God's divine providential power compels obedience. It doesn't sort of exhaust it or uh, uh, remove the, the air out of the balloon of obedience. It, in fact, compels it and propels it. And uh, we'll see that here. But before we do, let's go ahead and look to the Lord uh, in prayer and ask him for his help as we uh, look at Esther chapters 4 and 5. Father, we thank you for uh, your rich providential control over all things. We thank you that uh, you are uh, not disinterested in your creation or aloof from it, but you are uh, intimately caring for every detail. And we thank you that even in the midst of spiritually low times, uh, that you are not any less in control. Uh, but it, even in those moments, you are powerful. And you are working things out for your honor and your glory specifically to keep your promises to your people. And we thank you for that. And so I pray that in our minds tonight, that as we, uh, again, understand a little more about your providence, that we would be compelled to obey and help us to uh, join Esther and Joseph and Daniel uh, and Nehemiah men and uh, women who found themselves in spiritually low times and in uh, Gentile courts and who were compelled to obey when the timing was right. And we thank you for them and for their witness to us in the church. We love you and pray for your help tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we've mentioned already in the book of Esther, one of the outstanding realities is we never see the name of God mentioned. But as we read the account that the author gives us, who is unnamed, uh, concerning the, the events of Esther and Mordecai and Ahasuerus and Vashti, and uh, we certainly see that God is acting in an absolute heroic way. Uh, some would argue behind the scenes, uh, as we study and understand, we see that it's not a mere behind-the-scenes activity, but that God is providentially working, and uh, He truly is on every page of the book of Esther. We mentioned in our prayer that these are not spiritually high times. 
Uh, these are spiritually low times. Uh, we're going to see that Esther and Mordecai and these people are not given to us as great heroes of moral of moral excellence. Uh, we, we see all kinds of troubling things going on in this book. And that only highlights the fact that even in spiritually low times, even in morally difficult times, God is not any less powerfully operating to keep his promises to his people. But divine providence may be an unfamiliar term to you. Simply put, it is foresight or making provision beforehand. Uh, the Baker's Evangelical Dictionary states that when applied to God, the idea takes on a vastly larger dimension. Because God not only looks ahead and makes provision for his goals, but he infallibly accomplishes what he sets out to do. Let me repeat that. Unlike you and I who try to uh, have a measure of foresight and preparation... Unlike you and I, God always infallibly accomplishes what he sets out to do. And really, in the book of Esther, we're seeing God's uh, commitment to the Abrahamic covenant. That the nation of Israel would never be snuffed out. That they would be a blessing to all the nations. And uh, God is true to his promise. Remember that we called that a unilateral promise to Abraham. That there is nothing that Abraham would have to do uh, for God to accomplish that promise. It was all on God's shoulders. And in analogous fashion, we, we observe the New Testament church has a kind of unilateral covenant. Now, certainly not in the terms of Abraham by any stretch of the imagination, but it is a promise. And that is, is that God will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is our promise, and as members of the local New Testament church, that promise has bearing on your life individually. And all the things that God's word has proclaimed in relationship to you, God is providentially about the business of pursuing those with every ounce of, and fiber of his being. And we summarize that in the idea of Christ-likeness. Uh, so God is pursuing that individually. He is pursuing it corporately in the local New Testament church. But providence. A critical component of God's providence is that he works out his loving plan in a way that is consistent with natural laws of time and space as he created them to be. He does so in ways he has not quite yet revealed to us. If you want to mark down heading uh, the, the book of Esther... Uh, the reference of Deuteronomy 29.29. And there uh, Moses reminds us that the secret things belong to God. And the revealed things belong to us. How God providentially works through not only events, but through the individual wills and desires of men and women is just flat out an unrevealed mystery to us. But we witness the reality that he does it. And he does it with, with, with absolutely breathtaking ability. And uh, that's really what we want to see here in the book of Esther. 
Its counterpart, and we've tried to make this, this differentiation for us, the counterpart of providential power is miraculous power, right? Miraculous power intervenes by breaking the normal natural laws of time and space. And it's by its very essence, it, it's very personal and direct. Uh, so we have God uh, working providentially and God working miraculously. And as we open up the pages of scripture, we see both. But we see by far and away, the larger amounts of time is given over to God's providential work. God's providential work. So, so we talked about we want to curtail the thought that we're waiting for a miracle, okay? Uh, miraculous times occur in Scripture. We know that Mount Sinai for the nation of Israel was a miraculous time. Uh, certainly before that, the time of Judges, there were certain miracles. But by and large, in the nation of Israel, they relied upon God's providential power to keep His promises, Specifically, the promise to Abraham, the, the bilateral promises that he made through Moses, and uh, those sort of, if you will, then I will promises that God made. So there are miracles, but by and large in the Old Testament, it's providence that rules. We turn to the Gospels, and we see miracles almost upon every page that we read, and it's a very unique time in this God's salvation history and his program of working out salvation. Here we have God himself coming on earth. We have the kingdom of light, uh, tangential or touching the kingdom of darkness in a way it never had before. And as a result, we have demons all over the place, kind of, you know, popping up just about on every other page of scripture. And we have the king of kings, the Lord of lords doing miracles. It really was a, 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 an, an astounding time in God's era of, or the outworking of his salvation. Uh, but again, that gives way to the New Testament local church. And again, upon its inception, we have miracles. We see that in the book of Acts, although those miracles very quickly um, uh, sort of give way to, once again, God's normal working in providence in the local church. Now, there will be another great time of miracles. We're looking forward to that. What's the time we're looking forward to? What's God's next great miraculous thing that he's going to do with the church? He's going to rapture it out, right? And that's uh, imminent. That's the next thing on the prophetic calendar. We are a group of people who live in the last times. The last times began when Jesus ascended into heaven. So when we read in, in, in the, uh, the, the New Testament... Um, we ought not to think because we're 2,000 years removed from Paul and the establishment of the church that we are any more in the last times than he was. We are not. Uh, the last times is a reference to the prophetic calendar. So we're just waiting. God could revive as he has historically, or God could see fit to come again in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that sort of sets the framework uh, of providence, of providence. Now, so far from the book of Esther, we've learned a few things. Uh, the first the truth we learned from Esther was that God's providential control over all things is comprehensive. Remember, 
the book of Esther sort of opens up with this great uh, painting of historical picture of, 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 of empire and, and of all the things that are going on in Persia. And, and guess who is there working things out? It's the God of heaven, and he's doing so providentially. He's in comprehensive control of all things, uh, not only to the extent of nations and their corporate expressions of strength, but all the way down to Esther, who, who enjoys favor from the emperor uh, for reasons given. But obviously, uh, this was a beauty pageant, we argued. There were obviously other beautiful women. But God, for some reason, allowed Esther uh, to find favor with Ahasuerus. That's providential. Uh, uh, it's not miraculous. We know there are some things that were true of Esther, but it was providential. So it's comprehensive. It goes from one pole, history and nations, all the way down to the other pole of a emperor showing favor. Remember, it just wasn't being attracted to her. It was actually showing her favor. Because that was going to be critical. She was going to need that. So we learned that. The second thing we learned uh, last time we were together is that God's providential control over all things is precise and personal. You know, that, that one of the things we, you know, maybe we pine a lot of time away from longing for miracles is because miracles by their very nature are precise and personal. But lest we spend a whole lot of time pining away for a a miracle, God wants us to know from the book of Esther that providence is equally precise and equally personal as any miracle ever was to encourage our hearts to remain steady uh, and, and to just keep moving along the normal accepted ways of doing business that God is intimately weaving the fabric of your existence in a way uh, that his providence deems appropriate. Appropriate. So tonight then, we're going to observe, as we've already mentioned, from Esther chapter 4 and 5, the truth that God's divine providence compels us to obedience. It compels us to obedience. And it really answers the question then, if God is in absolute control of absolutely everything and what we're arguing all the time, what place do I have then? What am I supposed to do? And here the book of Esther gives a, an amazing, robust answer to that question. And uh, if, if we have ears to hear tonight, uh, the Holy Spirit hopefully will encourage your heart uh, that it will compel you to obey, unlike anything else ever has or ever will. It's the recognition of God's rich providential work. So for several reasons tonight, God's divine providence compels us to obedience. And the first one, again, as is often the case, it sort of begins on, on the, the, the grand scale, on the grand scheme of things. As we enter into Esther chapter 4, God's providence compels obedience because the laws of nations are ultimately the servants of God's plan. The laws of nations are ultimately the servants of God's plan, and therefore, let's obey. You know, so often when we come face to face with the grand expression of the strength of mankind as it is in nations or communities, or uh, we could even bring it down to the idea of peer pressure as it exists in our life, we, 
We could simply at times just throw up our hands and think, well, they are diametrically opposed to God's plan, so why try to do anything anyway? But Esther argues something different. Esther argues, or the book of Esther argues, that even as nations, as communities, as peers, set themselves against God, that God is in fact working in and through all of that. And he wants you to obey. He wants you to obey. So even when it seems like you're standing all alone, even when it seems like <laughs> there's nobody with you, know this, that God's providence compels obedience. Obedience. Well, how do you see that, Pastor? Well, at this point in the account, uh, the plot is going, the tension of the plot is going to intensify and emotions are going to spill over. Uh, we see here in chapter 4, verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, and that's in reference to what Haman had proclaimed about the Jews, that they would be utterly destroyed. And remember, he threw the pure, the poor, the lot. And it just so happened that it would be not the first month, but 12 months from now. Again, uh, inkling of God's providential control. Poor, the poorim. We're going to find out that that's another purpose of the book of Esther. But, but it just so happens. And then Haman uh, works Ahasuerusa against the nation. And remember we had that little going on in, in the king's gate where, where Mordecai would not bow to Haman. And Haman didn't even notice it. But, but uh, all, all of the servants uh, in the king's court or in the king's gate were asking Mordecai, why aren't you bowing? Why aren't you bowing? And Mordecai said, because I'm a Jew. There's a lot of things Mordecai could have said. So in that sense, we would think Mordecai did what? He blew it. So it's not going to be just enough for Mordecai to, or I'm sorry, Haman to kill Mordecai or get back at Mordecai. Now Haman's going to get rid of the whole ethnic Jewishness. So, so it seemed like he blew it. But again, God's providentially working. God will always be true to his promise in your life. What does he say? What he says will come about. It will come about. But, so Mordecai learns all that had been done. He tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and ashes. He goes into the midst of the city. He wails loudly and bitterly. But verse number two, he can only go so far because of the law of the land. And at this point, it seems, ah, the law is standing in the way. The law of the land. The Romans 13 government officials. Here they're in the way. But oh, we're going to see no. Uh, the law of the land, in fact, is going to be used of God in a very special way. But, so he can only go so far as the king gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate, clothed in sackcloth and ashes. Remember, we heard about the king's gate. Remember, that's where all Haman's good buddies are, in the king's gate. He couldn't get in there. We're going to find out some other things. Uh, what we basically argue here. As the tension increases and as the emotions spill over, as Mordecai's wailing loudly and bitterly. And in fact, in each and every province, the Jews here are equally weeping and wailing, and all are dressed in sackcloth and ashes. 
Uh, certainly Mordecai's identity now is front and center. Um, so God's providence uses the law of the land, and for the time, he protects Esther's identity. Well, what are the laws that helps to protect Esther's identity, which is still very important at this point in the historic account? Mordecai is clearly identified, but it is not yet time for Esther's ethnic identity to be revealed. If it gets revealed now, there's going to be great problems. And Haman's demise will not be as complete and as clearly providential as it could potentially be. God's going to, God's going to make a lesson of Haman. So what are the laws that sort of help? Well, the first law that God's providence uses is don't wear sackcloth in the king's presence or even up to the king's gate. He could get no closer than the king's gate. Mordecai completely and publicly identified as a Jew. And in so doing, he endangers the life of anyone who would come into contact with him. However, the law commanded that he could go no further in his demand really to get to Esther. It's really probably what he was doing or desire to, and obviously the rest of the text points that out. In chapter 4, verse 4, Esther, wanting to hear Mordecai's issues, sends Mordecai some clothes, because she knows if he dresses properly, then he could come into the king's gate and have access, and it wouldn't look like so much that Esther was going to him and identifying with him. Ministers' maidens uh, um, tell her in verse number four, the queen, she writhes with great anguish. She knows something's wrong. She sends garments to clothe Mordecai that he would remove from him the sackcloth. And then we could put reading between the lines so that he could come in. But what does Mordecai do? Well, he apparently frustrates even more. He refuses the clothes. And this, this seems to be problematic. And yet God's providence even works through this. Providence knew that exposure at this point in the story would foil the greatly needed buildup of Haman's pride and assuming destruction. It gave Esther the upper hand in communicating with Mordecai on her terms rather than his, albeit well-intentioned terms. But Mordecai persists. He doesn't accept the close, chapter 4, verse 4b, forcing the necessity of communicating in some other way. And then what seems to be absolutely, um, you know, it's, it's, it's at the point where you, you sit here in the story thinking, whatever you do, don't do this. Because this truly will wrench the power of God's ability to save anyone absolutely out of his hands. So what does Esther do? He takes into confidence this eunuch, this Persian Gentile eunuch. Uh, and you see him there. Um, um, verse number uh, six, actually five, then Esther summons Hathak from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what was and why it was. So Haddock went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all 
that had happened to him. And the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict, which had been issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go into the king to implore his favor and plead with him for her people. Verse number nine, Hathak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. So who knows everything? <laughs> this guy who could care less potentially about Jews. You know, he knows how the palace works. And yet it would seem that all potentially could be lost. But no, no, God is still providentially working so she sends Hathak, and what results? Well, it seems like by the time we begin to deal with Ahasuerus and Haman, there's only two people in this whole story who don't know Esther and Mordecai's ethnic background, and it's in fact Ahasuerus and Haman. You, the reader, know. All the, the eunuchs know. The maidens know. Everybody knows, but God in his providential power keeps that knowledge from the two critical people who mustn't know. And he has that amazing ability. It's really quite breathtaking and stunning. Um, and truly calls forth praise and adoration for God's work in our lives. The second law uh, that works in God's favor is that no obstacle uh, or is that death for those who come into the king's presence without being summoned. Chapter 4, verse 10. Uh, we read that here. Uh, so Hathak reports Mordecai's words to Esther. Esther then speaks to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. All that the king's servants and people of the king's province know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to, in, to the inner court who is not summoned, he, is there, he has but one law, that he would be put to death. Here's another law of the land. And again, it seems like it's, it's an absolute obstacle for God to work out being faithful to his promise, to his word. And yet instead, God uses this law. This law is a servant. Well, what does this law do? Well, number one, it heightens the tension. Uh, Esther, uh, uh, and, 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 and then the tension, if it wasn't tense enough, uh, reports that not only is this true, the law, but, but she hasn't even been invited for the past 30 days into the king's presence. So as far as she knows, the king has completely forgotten about her. So she's afraid that even just showing up, he won't recognize her. <coughs> But this law is used of God's providence. Number one, it marks the tempo of God's ultimate deliverance. Okay, so what we have now is we have God sort of putting a slow, putting, tapping his foot on the brake pedal of the story. Okay, particularly in the realm of this overflowing emotion, overflowing. So now because the stakes are so high, somebody's actually going to have to pause a minute here, <laughs> gather themselves and begin to think about how we're going to do this. And it's this law that causes Esther pause and, 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 and really begins. Not only does it sort of put the foot on, uh, on the break of the, the narrative here a little bit, um, 
But it also is going to force Esther to an amazing confession of courageous obedience. You see, if this law didn't exist, there would be no confession of Esther. Nobody would want to call their daughters Esther. Right? Esther would not be in the Bible. But God, in his providence, in these spiritually low times, is going to elevate his name. And he's going to do that by pressing Esther to, even in, in, in sort of her spiritually low reality, to acknowledge in the face of this seemingly uh, unhurtable obstacle that she's really going to have to settle in her mind what she knows to be true and believes and what isn't. So not only does God's providence compel obedience because the laws of nations are ultimately his mere servants. Can we all take a deep breath? That's a blessing. So even when it seems like the laws of the land are against us. Do we throw up our hands and run into our own corners and do our thing and not fellowship and worship and corporate and do all the things God has commanded us to? No. No, we recognize that God's even using the laws of the land. Number two, God's providence compels obedience because it eliminates the possibility of a you alone existence. Chapter or verse number 13. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Them. Now we got plural. Okay, so again, here we got lots of people knowing, <laughs> knowing this. Everybody but Haman and Ahasuerus. Um, do not imagine that you, and if you have an NIV on your lap, what's the next word? Anybody have an NIV on their lap? Or even the King James Version, I think, sort of intimates this. The NASB is always so literal, it sort of skips the idea. But the word should be supplied there alone, you alone. Okay, this is the issue. Mordecai's warning Esther, do not imagine that you alone in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. Who knows? Who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this? And here, in these verses and in the verses to follow, we really find out the part that providence plays in our life in compelling us to courageous faith and obedience. Here it is. Here it is. We probably have in these verses the most profound statements in all of Scripture of the realities that govern in the presence of God. And can I say this, my beloved friends, that the only reality that matters is the reality that exists in God. Can we agree to that? Any reality that deviates from what God knows to be real and true is as a reality that leads in all the wrong directions, <laughs> right? Um, but here's reality. Here's providence. Uh, remember, these are not spiritually good times. These are not morally good people. 
They, however, like all, are subject to the realities of God's great providence. Whether morally astute or not. God's providence, my friends, we find out in these verse, have an ultimate reference point. And it is not the queen of the emperor of the most powerful nation in the world. That is not the ultimate reference point for Esther. And if you are elevated to that kind of power, which none of us ever will, and if it certainly wasn't for Esther, it certainly shouldn't be for you and I. We have no empire. We have no thoughts of power in that sense. So God has an ultimate reference point. It is himself and specifically the fulfillment of the promises he has made. My friends, it is not you, and it is not me. A you alone, self-preservation, self-fulfillment mentality is just not in God's providential machinery. It's not there. So anytime we are passionately, persistently demonstrating self-interests, Self-preservation, just know we are outside the bounds of God as he defines reality. And just like Mordecai warns, Esther, it will not go well for you if you persist or if you think that you alone will be spared. No two, friend, dearly beloved in the church, if you persist in sort of minimizing God's words and values, it just won't go well. It just won't. It's going to be a hard row to hoe. The book of Proverbs reminds us that the way of the sinner is hard. It's hard. That's because God's providence is in control. Uh, the you alone thinking is a fairy tale in the land of God's divine providence. And we remember this throughout the Old Testament. Whether it was Samuel's rebuke of Saul to obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. And as Saul tried to create his own little world of reality of, oh, I saved the animals for God. And I saved the king because I wanted you to see him. And he had all sort of these better ideas than God did. And that day, Samuel said, God ripped the kingdom away from him. If you want more passages about providential reality, Psalm 50, verses 7 to 15. So here Mordecai rescues, unwittingly, I believe, Esther from the temptation of living, living under such a fantasy. He reminds her really of two truths. And it's well that we pay heed to the two truths. Number one, that God's providence has put us in life for service, particularly the faith community, and not for our own self-interests. Do you see that? He says, look, he says, look, if you remain silent, know that relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Esther, the fact that you are the queen of the most powerful man probably one of the most powerful men in the, in the world history, is inconsequential. God doesn't need you to fulfill, to execute his promise, specifically made to Abraham in the preservation of the Jewish nation. 
And the second thing he reminds her, her of is God's providence prioritizes the family of faith over individual concerns. She had just laid her heart out. What you're asking me to do, Mordecai, I could literally die. And Mordecai says, well, that's okay, Esther. Know that God is providential in life, powerful and, you know, written between the lines. God is also providentially powerful in death. Death isn't so bad when you're on the king's side or on God's side, so just obey. And if you don't, it's going to go bad for you, and God, somebody else will. And it might not be Esther, it might be Susie. So everybody wants Susie's name, and it won't be yours, Esther. So that's what's going on here. Sin seeks isolation. Obedience flourishes in mutual dependence. And that's true in the nation of Israel. That's true here in the church. Uh, the whole of the New Testament is viewed in community of faith, isn't it? We have 12 one another's. One another, pray for one another, encourage one another, build up one another, confess our faults to one another, love one another, be devoted to one another, honor one another, serve one another, bear with one another, submit to one another, spur one another on to love and good deeds, be hospitable to one another, greet one another. The church is a one another reality. So God's providence eliminates a you-alone mentality. And with a you-alone mentality, it compels obedience, doesn't it? That's really what, what Mordecai is saying. I guess you just obey, you know? It'll go well with us. This is your time. And who knows, by the way, that God may have given you royalty for this exact moment. And, 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 and any moment that you and I find in our life where we're at the crossroads of obedience, maybe we're isolated and we think nobody else is around, may the words of Mordecai echo in our minds loudly, loudly obey. Because if you don't, somebody will. Um, so obey, obey, and become that Titus 2 man, that Titus 2 woman. Become that father whose children love. And, and it, 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 remember what the book of Proverbs says, in your old age, dad, they stand up. And you know what they do? They, they, they argue based, they, they will not let anybody slander you because they know your character. Don't you want that? Women, don't you want your children to rise up and call you blessed? God's providence eliminates a you alone mentality and thereby compelling obedience. Your life is never you alone. Obey, my friends. Obey. You know, we could, marital affairs, for example. A man or a woman begin to think that it's they alone, they alone, they alone. In those moments, they fail. And what God says is true. The children, you know, they appreciate you and everything, but that's about as far as things go. 
Mom, you're nice and everything. But the kinds of influence and standing that God has designed for you to have, you will not have, you know? I don't know, maybe in your case, if I were to fail, none of my grandchildren would be called Kent Jr. Right? I mean, you know? But just maybe, just maybe, just maybe, if I continue to persevere, if I wrestle against those you alone moments and I obey, even in my spiritually low times, just maybe, just maybe, there will be a grandchild in my life with my name's sake and yours as well. That's the message of the, book of, Proverbs, of the book of Esther. This is the message of providence. It compels obedience. You see, we could, uh, there's a difference between resignation and fatalism. Remember, uh, resignation, and that's what Esther does. Resignation leads to acceptance, acquiescence, acknowledgement, submission, and forbearance. She's not, she's not fatalistic here. Fatalism leads to passivity, pessimism, defeatism, despondency, and despair. No, the difference is in the question of who or what do you believe controls the universe in your spiritually low time? Is it just fate and chance? Or is there, in fact, a God who is personal, loving, and has a plan and wants to richly work that plan out through your enjoying the product of holiness in your life? See, we're not fatalistic, but we are a people who resign ourselves in those moments. Even when we're facing death, we resign ourselves. We acquiesce joyfully. Well, Esther wasn't doing it joyfully. But we acquiesce. And we obey. So believer, unbeliever, you know, you, you, you want to know and understand and receive God's promise to you concerning his son. That you can be assured of a home in heaven. And you want God's providence working that reality out in your life. Trust me. Believer, obey. Ears, nations, whatever groups of people as they try to put pressure on you, don't acquiesce to that. Obey. And as you obey, God will work out all those little details. And in fact, you just might find he was using those to your benefit. And then let us never, ever surrender to the you alone mentality. Let us resign and glorify God. All right, let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your providential power. And I pray that this would be the, what excites the church Father, forgive us for making so little of providence and making so much of miracle. Oh God, whet our appetite to providence, for it's in providence that we persevere. It's in providence that even in the spiritually low times, you compel us to obey, resigning ourselves to your truth to the reality that there is a God who has a plan 
and who is working that plan out. And in those moments, help us to acquiesce in obedience, Lord. Please make Grace Church of Men are a place that richly loves providence, talks of it, trains its eye to see it, and its, uh, and, and its character to develop in, in, in step with it. We thank you for it, Lord. We love you. Uh, go with us now as we uh, go into our business meeting tonight. I pray that uh, these truths would fill our hearts and our minds. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.